St. Dominic's Catholic Church in San Francisco presents a homily by Father Alan White on June 9, 2019, Pentecost Sunday. Today's Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. As we come to the end of our novena to St. Peregrine, let us say together our novena prayer, which you'll find in your program. O great St. Peregrine, you have been called the wonder worker because of the numerous miracles which you have obtained from God for those who have had recourse to you. For so many years you bore in your own flesh the debilitating disease of cancer. I seek God's healing. Help me to imitate your enduring faith in the face of my great challenge, that I may trust the Lord as you did in your time of affliction. Help me to find the strength to proclaim God's presence in my life, despite the anguish and fear this disease causes in me and my loved ones. O glorious St. Peregrine, aided in this way by your powerful intercession, I will sing to God now and for all eternity a song of gratitude for his great goodness and mercy. Amen. So in today's Gospel, John tells us that the disciples were sequestered, hidden away, shut in, out of fear. And that strikes an echo with us of another couple who hid out of fear. Adam and Eve in the garden who hid in the trees. In this passage from John's Gospel and in the passage from the Acts of the Apostles, there are references back to the Old Testament story of salvation. So, they were hidden away out of fear. But Jesus came and stood amongst his disciples. So no locks, no doors, no bars could keep him out. There's no notion of how he got there. He was just there in the midst of them. And St. John tells us, or it's translated as saying, this is the first day of the week. Because in fact, the actual Greek is, could be translated as a cardinal number, not an ordinal number. Ordinal numbers are a sequence, first, second, third, fourth. 
with the cardinal number, so this could be translated as day one. So on day one, Jesus appears to them. What is this day one? It's resurrection day. And what's that a reference back to? The first verses in the book of Genesis. Evening came and morning came, not the first day, but day one. So this day of the resurrection is day one of the new creation. So Jesus appears on day one. The first day of the week, too. And every weekly cycle refers back then to that first weekly cycle, the creative weekly cycle. So he was just there, and then he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So as in the beginning, when the Lord God took the dust and clay of the earth and breathed life into it, forming the features of Adam into his own image, so now this disparate group, cowering in an upper room in Jerusalem, are formed into the image of Christ. This group is made into a new body, a representative body, the body of Christ, the second Adam, chosen, formed, and sent at the same time as he was. So this is the way that Christ's presence in the world is now to be realized again until he comes. So we are on day one. So the Old Testament records a whole series of new beginnings where God then tried once more to reform and to heal the wound of the Garden of Eden by calling Abraham, by calling his people out of Egypt, by giving them the law in Mo of Moses, by entering the Promised Land with them, and by giving them King David. All of these were new beginnings, and all of them failed. They were not day one. Now, in ancient Judaism, the days of Pentecost, which were the, were the days of the harvest festival. So the 50 days then, after our Easter, were the days of the harvest. So this is harvest time for us too, members of the church. Christ sleeps in the earth as buried grain and then appears as wheat that springs up green in the resurrection. And then the harvest in terms of the people of God grows and is gathered and garnered by the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Day. What Christ sows, the Holy Spirit reaps. So the 49 days preparation for the 50th day of the Pentecost Harvest Festival represented the time between Moses leading the people out of Egypt and their assembly at the foot of the mountain to receive the law. So there's another strand. The beginnings, the first day, the harvest, and now the law. So what was begun in the Exodus was brought to fruition at Sinai in the giving of the law. Pentecost wasn't just an agricultural festival, it was a historical festival with a precise date and context. It was a feast of the giving of the law when God married himself to Israel, his bride. So Pentecost celebrates the harvest and the giving of the law, and Israel's receiving the word of God. But what law is given to us on Pentecost? Is it a written law? No. It's the law which is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. The gospel is not a written law. It's an interior law. And we try to live according to its rhythms, and we express that in the conduct and character of our lives together. 
And so Luke shows us in his account of Pentecost in the first reading that he knew about all these connections with creation, with the harvest, with the giving of the law. First of all, he tells us they were all together in one place. He doesn't say who they were, but he says they were in a house. And in Luke's gospel, the word house is a kind of code word. It often has a reference to the house, the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem, which by tradition then is the prototype of our heavenly home. So they were gathered in one house. And tradition places this house on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. So Mount Zion to every pious Jew is the center of the world, the place where God dwells amongst people in his holy house. It's the place where God's house is. In the Easter events, we celebrate a seismic shift taking place. The dwelling of God is not to be on Mount Zion in this stone-built temple. The new com community of his body is to be the place where he makes his dwelling. Wisdom is building herself a house. So the new temple is not built by human hands. It's built of living stones animated by the Holy Spirit, of which we are part. Now Luke is telling us then that the sealing of this new covenant on Calvary both fulfills and goes beyond the covenant forged with Israel through Moses on the other mountain, the mountain of Sinai. He tells us that by giving some details which are found in the account in Exodus of the giving of the law. There are similarities between the experience of the descent of the Holy Spirit in the Acts of the Apostles and the giving of the law on Sinai. On Pentecost Day, it's early in the morning, Luke tells us, just like the morning on which Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And as the people stood at the foot of the mountain, having prayed and fasted for a period beforehand, it was shaken by a great noise and sounds like thunder or a great trumpet blast. And it's lit up by the fire of lightning as God discloses his presence on the holy mountain. So fire and noise and wind at Sinai, as on the Temple Mount, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the descent of the Holy Spirit. And the spectacle at Sinai was so great, so a first century rabbinical tradition tells us, that the peoples round about rushed to find out what was taking place out of curiosity. But they couldn't understand. They hadn't shared in the experience. So the fire and noise of the descent of the Holy Spirit, fire, flame, noise, and wind, also draws the curiosity and fear of the people of Jerusalem. The multitude of devout men, those pilgrims drawn from the Jewish communities of the diaspora, are amazed and wonder when they hear the preaching of the gospel in their own language. They are able to understand what those at Sinai could not. And the people of Israel, we're told, at Sinai were one in mind and heart as they welcomed the law as the gift of God, just as the Pentecost community in Jerusalem were one in mind and heart. So Pentecost then is the epiphany, the manifestation of the covenant community of the church, which is born from the side of Christ on Calvary. And the assembly of the people of Israel at the foot of Sinai in the book of Exodus is given a special name in the Greek Old Testament translation. It was called Ecclesia, which comes eventually into English through Latin as church. It can be translated as church. But it means assembly, assembly. So it's that assembly which is drawn into existence by the splendor of God's word 
and sustained an existence by inspired obedience to it. So Luke uses this word only in the Acts and never in his Gospel. For him, the church is brought into existence first as it's addressed by the risen Christ and then drawn or harvested into obedience by the Spirit of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God. But what God wrought on Sinai in the giving of the law, the sharing of his word, was an attempt to reconstitute humanity in Adam's shape. So the Paschal events, the Easter events, the passion, death, and glorification of Christ actually accomplished that. There is no more to come. This is it. This is day one. We live in day one. So what the first Adam lost to the second Adam not only wonderfully restores, but raises to a new level of existence. It's a new way of life which marks off this people from everybody around them and makes them appear eccentric and odd. Now the first covenant on Sinai expressed in the law presented a radical challenge to a world, a contemporary world, which is founded on injustice, competition, rivalry, and greed. It called the people of Israel not to shape their own life according to these rhythms, but to shape it according to a new imperative, a way of life that incarnated new social, economic, and cultural values, new religious values, a way of life that held together a redeemed community no longer bound in a world severed from God. Now, the fulfillment of the new and eternal covenant, the covenant sealed in the blood of Christ, is God's last word. It draws all who share in it into a new form of life, a life which isn't narrowly tied to the present or confined in an oppressive nostalgia for the past, but receives God's future as a gift. We try to live as if the kingdom has come. We live according to the patterns and rhythms of God's future. So this gift brings reconciliation, a reconciliation in which diversity and plurality are not expressed in egotistical individualism, but in the charity and harmony of communion. Your sins are forgiven, not dragged out and paraded before the multitude for all to scoff and express scorn. Well, St. Luke stresses that each one heard the apostolic preaching in their own tongue. So when the noise and flames lit up the scene of the giving of the law on Sinai, we're told that the people saw the sound. It can be translated that way. They saw the sound. It impinged on them. But it almost became a visual expression of this great commotion. And the rabbis, when they're trying to understand this, explain that the noise fanned the air into tongues, which gave the one voice of God a plurality of expression, which allowed all of those who heard it to understand it in their own language. The noise fanned the air into tongues. So the law, through the people of Israel, through their witness, was to be made accessible to all. Now in Luke, the one fire in many tongues rests on each of the community. It prompts them to utter the gospel, the one gospel, and to be understood in many different ways. So all of the proud pretension that led to the building of the Tower of Babel, with its mutual incomprehension, its conflict between peoples and tongues and races, is undone in this recreative act of the Spirit of God, which plants the seed of a universal communion, a Catholic communion. So the Pentecost feast is both process and event. It celebrates the harvest which God has sown and the Spirit reaps. 
It celebrates that in the first fruits of the new humanity found in the risen Christ, we too are present as members of his body in the unity of the Holy Spirit before the throne of God. But of course, we still experience the tension of the already and the not yet. To live as if the kingdom has come is to say that it has not yet fully come. It's been inaugurated, but not consummated. The charm of the pilgrimage sometimes gives way to the strain of the route march. But the Jerusalem community was a communion which under the inspiration of the Spirit renounced injustice, rivalry, and greed, which had been freed from self-enclosure and self-preoccupation in order to be plunged into communion. St. Luke's church, our church, does not renounce the world, but it's rather the way the world is embraced by the Father using the two arms of the Son and the Spirit. And the communion he shows us is not an artificial world, not a virtual world, not an ideal world, not a fantasy world. It is the world as it is meant to be. It is the icon of the world clothed and transfigured by grace. World as it is meant under God's grace to be. So let us pray together our prayer to St. Jude. St. Jude, glorious apostle, faithful servant and friend of Jesus, the name of the traitor has caused you to be forgotten by many, but the church honors and invokes you universally as the patron of difficult and desperate cases. Pray for me who am in need of God's mercy. Make use, I implore you, of that particular privilege accorded to you to bring visible and speedy help where help was almost despaired of. Come to my assistance in this great need that I may receive the consolation and help of heaven in all my necessities, tribulations, and sufferings, particularly. And that I may praise God with you and all the elect throughout all eternity. I promise you, O blessed Jude, be ever mindful of this great favor. I will honor you as my special and powerful patron and encourage devotion to you. St. Jude, pray for us and for all who honor and invoke thy aid. Amen.